Hi, everybody. Uh, Hello. Thanks for coming. Uh, I'm a little worried about uh, Peter being able to hear me. Can you hear me, Peter? Because you could sit over here. We could put a chair right over here. And then for, it'd be easier. You want to do that? How about you do that? Yeah. Yeah, you don't want to move? Because uh, I'm talking really loudly. I don't know if I can keep this up the whole time. We have, we have chairs up here. Yeah, there are chairs right here. So, come on. Come on up. Okay, well, maybe I'll come later. If you can't hear. <laughs> Yeah. Well, thank you, Colin, for inviting me. I appreciate it. And thanks, everybody, for showing up. Uh, I did a, I, we didn't realize exactly that there was sitting earlier. So uh, we would have come and sat, but we didn't know it. So also, I didn't realize that. Uh, I think the website says that somehow we're supposed to talk together for two hours, which is hard to believe, right? <laughs> two hours? So uh, we'll see what happens. Uh, I don't have certainly two hours of things to say, but maybe, maybe you have uh, questions, discussion we can, we can engage in. I don't know. You're not beholden. Yeah. Right. I'm sure we can always leave early, right? Right. Right. Well, uh, mostly I'm here to talk about uh, my latest Dharma book, which is called The World Could Be Otherwise, Imagination in the Bodhisattva Path. And I will do that. I want to do that. And I'll read from the book. <clears throat> But first, uh, even though this probably has nothing to do with it, uh, I want to tell you about a sutra I've been studying. That's a totally, totally different uh, subject. And also, uh, since uh, the book is about imagination, I brought some of my poetry books, and I thought I might read a few poems. Probably somebody here likes poetry, I know, at least one person. Now, I mean, Naomi, who's... He's a great poet. You know Naomi? Everybody here knows Naomi, right? So, so I thought I would do those three things and then, and then see what happens after that. That's my plan, just so you know, okay? So I was reading this sutra the other day, and I was really impressed with it, and I want to share with you uh, what I understood from reading this sutra. It's called... Uh, the uh, Kula Sunyata Sutta. Kula Sunyata Sutta. And it's Sutta number 121 in the Majjhima Nikaya, the middle length sayings of the Buddha from the Pali Canon. You can still hear me okay? Peter, you're okay? Yeah. Okay. So. 
Then the poly, the sutta is in the middle length. You know, there's long the Diginikaya longer suttas, the Diginikaya middle length, Samyutta Nikaya connected sayings shorter. So these suttas are typically about four or five pages long. This one is about that long. And Kula Sunyata translates as uh, basically the Kula Sunyata Sutta, sh the shorter discourse on voidness or emptiness. And the, and the next one is the longer Sutra on emptiness, but this is the shorter one. So in this Sutra, uh, Ananda says to the Buddha, well, I remember that one time you were in such and such a place and you said that I ought, you said, I, Buddha, I often abide in voidness, emptiness. What did you mean by that? Did I get that right? Is that what you said? And what did you mean by that? And the Buddha answers, yes, I did say that. You got that right. And here's what I mean by that. And then he launches into this lengthy discourse. And he's, he starts out by saying, he says, here we are, like here we are now, us, you know, here we are, in this very unusual place, a place like this great center. Nobody maybe around the block knows that we're here. But actually, it's a place devoted to you know, non-greed, non-competition, non-anger, all that, peacefulness, a place devoted to peacefulness. And, you know, meditation and cultivation of a good heart. He says, so we're here now, he says to Ananda, in a place like that. So that means that in this place, this place is void of aggression, competition, buying, selling, etc., etc. But it is not void of peacefulness and all these other things, right? So he's telling Ananda, when I said that I abide in voidness, I wasn't saying that I abide in some black hole or some like abstract you know, realm of voidness. What I meant was, I abided in a place that was void of something, but not void of something else. So, there's no void, like an abstract void. There's only void of something, and not void of something else. Like a glass, an empty glass of water, we say there's nothing in that glass of water, what we really mean by that is there's no liquid in the water. It's void of liquid, but the water is full of air, right? And in the Mahayana teachings about emptiness, it also says that things are void of something, empty of something, and not empty of something. Emptiness means empty of something, not empty of something. Things are empty of 
it's a technical word, own being. In other words, things are empty of individuality, separation, loneliness, alienation, neediness. They're not void of radical connection, love and compassion. That's what emptiness actually means. Emptiness means things are void, actually void of something and not void of something else. Of course, we don't really know that, so we're all stuck in the things that are void, actually, but we're making them into something, so we're suffering. Anyway, that's just a little side point. But the main point here is that Buddha said, we're in this peaceful place, which is void of some things and not void of other things. He then goes on in a progression of repetitions to go through, and I'm going to not go into this, but he's going to, he goes through a whole bunch of stages, ever-deepening stages of intense meditation practice. And basically, at the end of each one, he says, and this stage is void of the disturbances of the last stage. We've gone past those disturbances. It's void of disturbances of the last stage, but it is not void of the disturbances of this new stage. So every stage, you get over something, but then you have something else, right? But then he says, and this is the part that really moved me, he says, and having done that, having gone through and understood that this is not present, but this disturbance is present, he says, we... In doing that, find a mind of, and this is the English translation of Bhikkhu Bodhi, find a mind of confidence, steadfastness, and decision. This is what we were talking today, Shigeri, when we were talking, remember I mentioned that's what made me think of this. So, the virtue of my meditating at each successive stage is to purify myself of disturbances and have more peace. And yet there's another, still some disturbance. But in the process, each stage, I have more confidence, steadfastness, and decision. So this is, to me, a very beautiful and important thing because uh, I think that to be in a very realistic, non, I don't know what, non-spiritual or whatever, non-woo-woo, complicated, abstract way, don't we need this in our world? Doesn't every one of us want to have a heart full of confidence. Bad things might happen to me. I'm not kidding myself, but I have confidence. And I have steadfastness, and I have decisiveness, meaning commitment. I'm committed to a life of practice, a life of compassion, caring. And, I, and that's not just a bright idea I have. I might have that bright idea, but it's more than a bright idea. It's really 
so ingrained in me because I've gone through all these different stages and each one, this rediscovering this. So he goes through all, every, all these like very profound meditation states that he describes. And for those of you who are specialists in this, details of this, I will only say, just so you'll appreciate this. He has, a, this scheme is not the eight jhanas. You probably know about the eight jhanas, right, Colin? You studied the eight jhanic states. So the, he, he eliminates the first four and instead only mentions the uh, meditation on the earth disk. Long story. But anyway, there's four states beyond that. Anyway, never mind. But you go through all these states, and then at the last one that he mentions, he says, and so all these disturbances are eliminated, and we have a mind of you know, confidence and steadfastness and decision, but this much disturbance is not eliminated. What disturbance is not eliminated? disturbance of being a living being. Being alive is a problem. That's what he said. It's not your fault. It's not even the government's fault. It's a problem. Being alive. And so there will always be. This is the Buddha talking, right? The Buddha, the transcendent Buddha under the Bodhi tree. And all. He says, there will always be that amount of disturbance that you are alive. And the thing about being alive is you're always alive in a physical body, and the nature of that physical body is there will always be trouble with that physical body one time or another. That's its nature. So there will always be that much disturbance left. And also there's a mind, and so the mind is disturbed as well as the body. He says, but, he says, but, when there is that disturbance left, and you understand at this very deep level, having gone through all this meditation practice, when you understand that this disturbance is impermanent, and that its nature is to cease. When you really, really, really know in your whole body and mind that that is the case, you are then free. So even if you have the disturbance, you're free. You can have some real pleasure and joy in your life and confidence and steadiness and decisiveness. Even because you recognize what you are, who you are, you know who you really are, right? You know that you are a body and a mind in connection with all others, and that the nature of that body and mind is to arise and pass away. That is its nature. Knowing that you can be free and your heart can be unburdened. So that actually is the Buddha saying, this is what awakening is. It's not an abstract voidness of beyond transcending. It's not that. 
So he's saying, my enlightenment amounts to, I just know who I am. Really and truly. I don't fool myself. And I fully embrace the miracle of this life that arises and passes away. So poignantly and beautifully. It's a beautiful thing, this tragedy. And it is a tragedy of being human. It's a beautiful tragedy. The tragedy is the beauty. The beauty is the tragedy. And, and you really appreciate it. What a blessing, right? To be born, even though it's so difficult to know who you are and accept this human birth. What a beautiful blessing. So I'm so impressed with this sutra. I've been thinking about it. I read it maybe uh, a couple weeks ago, and I've been thinking about it ever since. And since that's what I'm thinking about, I wanted to tell you also, uh, since Naomi heard me talk already on this in San Francisco, I wanted to say a different thing for Naomi. <laughs> so you didn't hear this before. I didn't say it. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, uh, so the teachings of the Buddha and all, I think, good spiritual teachings, when you really study them and think about them, they're very uplifting. You know, it, it's, it's, uh, the world is beleaguering, right? It's always hard to take. It always has been. We, we haven't invented bad news. <laughs> There's always been bad news. It's hard. One's own life can be hard, and the life around us can be hard. But uh, spiritual teachings lift us up, give us the strength, the strength, the decisiveness, the steadfastness, the confidence to really and truly face this life without fooling around and pretending. And then I was listening to one of my geeky podcasts. I listened to some podcasts uh, uh, that are very interesting. And I heard, um, maybe you know about this person, uh, and, and so you'll correct me if I pronounce her name incorrectly. I think her name is uh, Barnisi. Prakesh. I'm pretty sure about Prakesh. I'm not sure about Varnisi. Varnisi. Do you know her? Did anybody know this person? It's surprising I, that we don't know about her. She is a young person who uh, is one of the founders of a movement called uh, Sunrise. Have you heard about this? Yeah. Yes. They're the ones who are most influential in creating the Green New Deal. They're the ones who sat in. Nancy Pelosi's office when uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez joined them and they made a lot of publicity at that point. But they're working, been for working for a long time uh, behind the scenes. And it's a youth movement. It's started by young people and has a mission to be a, mo a mass movement of young people. Sunrise. 
And uh, the reason I mention her is because it was a very in-depth conversation with her that lasted over an hour. So it was beyond soundbites. You're talking about who she was and what motivated her and what her life was and how she did what she did and so on. And one of the things she said was that uh, environmentalism now is beyond saving the planet. It's a ridiculous idea that we were going to... Somehow save the planet as if we're, we are not the planet ourselves. The planet is not us. We're saving ourselves. And she said the idea that environmentalism is a different issue from economic justice is a ridiculous idea. Even the Pope knows this, you know, in his encyclical, Laudato Si, he says the same thing. And they're very political. They work for candidates, you know what I mean? They're, they're not just... Uh, they, they realize that environmental salvation here requires political, serious political action. But the reason I'm mentioning all this is because she said that part of what we do in Sunrise is we all have a spiritual practice. Because we know that you can't sustain this if, you, if the, you build this on pessimism and bitterness, it's over. This is all, even though we're realistic about what's going on, the only way you do this is with sustenance. And she said, and so we sing a lot. They sing together as part of their, in all their meetings, they sing. She said, but what I do, she said, I read the Tao Te Ching. That's my Bible. Every morning, she said, every morning, I get up, and I sit for a little while, and I write down another verse, the next verse in the Tao Te Ching, and then I write in my journal for a few minutes, and then I try, during the rest of that day, to keep that in my mind, and everything I'm doing, to see it in the light of that verse. And she quoted a number of verses on how inspired she is, and she said, I need to be uplifted by that great ancient text. So, this is what I'm, all of this is sort of like a background to what I'm, why I wrote this book, The World Could Be Otherwise, Imagination and the Bodhisattva Path. Because I think that it's always been true, but now I think we're impressed, we scientific materialists, are finally impressed that the trajectory of scientific materialism takes us finally to the place where we have to love one another because we can no longer afford not to love one another because we will destroy one another unless we love one another. We come to that place realistically and scientifically, materially, logically, we are going to make a tremendous problem for our human societies. And we are making now already a tremendous problem unless we change. And, and changing doesn't mean a few little changes in policy. It means a really big change in our human hearts. That we're no longer feeling like, you know, Instead of saying, my life is about me, 
which is what most lot don't we all think that? My life is about me? Who doesn't think that? But actually, the Buddha always said, no, no, actually, your life is empty of you. Your life is void of you. It's not about you. If you think your life is about you, you're going to make a mess out of your life and everybody else around you. And that's exactly what we have been doing for quite a while. And we're really in a pickle. We can't do it anymore. We have to realize our life is empty of me and full of us. And now we need to know that us just doesn't mean some of us that look like us or that we like. It means all of us. It doesn't mean like men and then the women can clean up. It means all of us. This is a big challenge. We're not used to this. We are not used to this. But unless we change the way we think about who we are and what we're doing, we're in a pickle. So, I could say that, right? I could say that. I just said that. You could hear that. You could, maybe you think I'm crazy, or maybe you think, yeah, that's truly true. Easy enough to say, right? Easy enough to hear. Easy enough to agree with. Not that easy to feel it with confidence, steadfastness, and decision. <clears throat> and that's where spiritual practice comes into it. Because you actually have to have a discipline. You have to have a way to practice every day. Because every day point of view that you're conditioned to will reassert itself. It's the most natural thing to us. And every day we will be receiving an onslaught of messages from all around us telling us that the world is the way we all think it is. Even though it's not. It never has been. Therefore, to counteract all of that, we need a place like this, right? You come in here, and you're in a different point of view. Even if nobody opens their mouth, just to walk in here, nobody's selling you anything, nobody's serving you a drink, there's no ads on the walls, you sit down, you breathe, you're alone with your deepest inmost self. This doesn't happen anywhere else, but in a church, a synagogue, a mosque, a meditation hall, or under the trees, right, in the stars. You need, we all need, this daily cultivation. I think we also need more than this. It's not just, I wish, wouldn't it be great? We can solve the world's problems. Just come and sit in the zendo and go home, and that's all you need to do. I wish. No, I think we have to conceive of sitting in the Zendo as a support for what we do with our whole life 24-7. How we talk to other people, how we think about the world and about our own lives, our actions, our choices, every day, all day long. 
I'm not saying we have to be uptight and frightened about everything we do. I'm just saying we have to take everything that we do our whole lives as a challenge for our practice and as our own way of contributing to the better world that must come. We all have to make a drop in the bucket every minute all day long. So in this book I'm saying that, um, well maybe I'll read, <coughs> give you an idea of it. Everybody is okay? You're, you're comfortable enough? You can still hear, Peter? You can still hear? Good. Great. I may run out of voice before too long, but I'm, 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 I'm going. Yeah. <clears throat> so the book opens up with a story about the imagination. Because what I'm, all that I'm saying here is about the imagination. What I'm saying is the, re the, the world of so-called facts and data and the so-called news is not to be denied as if it weren't happening, but it's not to be taken as a description of the actual world. The actual world is created by the imagination. And spiritual practice is the effort to expand the muscle that we all have of the imagination, not to let it atrophy into its smallest common denominator. So I tell the story of Robert Desnos, who was a French surrealist poet, Jewish, during the Nazi times in Europe, he was French, so he went and fought in the French resistance, was captured, was sent to the death camps. So one day, they load the people onto the camp, onto the trucks, take them to the chambers. One by one, they get on the trucks. Everybody knows where they're going. It's very somber. Nobody speaks. You could even you can all can you can you imagine even put yourself in that place, getting onto a truck, going there. What you would feel in your heart. Devastating, right? They get to the place, slowly, 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 off the truck, slowly, 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 marching toward the showers. All of a sudden, one of the prisoners in the line, Desnos, turns around, grabs the hand of the person behind him, and sticks his head in the guy's face of the guy's hand, and starts reading his palm. Because He's a palm reader, I guess. He's reading his palm, and he gets happy and excited. He says, look at this lifeline. 
I never saw a longer lifeline than this. You're probably going to live to be 100 years old. And look at all the things that are going to happen good in your life. I am so happy and amazed by this. I can't believe what I'm seeing for sure in your hand. And all the prisoners are, what? What? Nobody knows what to think. And, they, and they're just like startled. And, and, and they all find themselves without even intending to, going like this, they're all putting up their hands, and he starts reading everybody's palm, and wouldn't you know it, everyone the same. Long life, wealth, accomplishments, family, travel, joyful, wonderful lives. And everybody's now excited, they're like doing little dances, the guards are standing there. They don't know what to think. They don't know how to understand this. They become confused. Because the guards and the prisoners were all living under a spell. This is the only way that that would happen, that Germany could happen. If everybody was living under a spell in which to take people and march them like this into a shower and into an oven, who thinks that makes any sense? Only if you're under a spell, some kind of crazy spell, can you live that life that they were all living. When this happened with the palm reading, the spell was suddenly broken. The reality that everybody had been living a moment ago, the reality that the guards had been living, was suddenly cast into doubt. No one was sure anymore what was real and what wasn't real. Perhaps the guards, better natures, because the guards, after all, were people. Like everybody else, they were decent people. But they had suppressed their better natures. Because they had to conform, they thought, to the Nazi madness that defined their world. They had to make themselves numb to the grief and the guilt and the horror and they had been living in that condition for a long time. But all of a sudden, with this crazy event, all that was shattered. And their decency was stirred up. And they really did not know what was going on. And they did not know what to do. So they turned the prisoners around, marched them back onto the truck, and the truck was sent back to the barracks, and those people were never executed. Robert, Robert Desnos, did not die in the camps. He was not executed. That's how powerful the imagination is. So, 
in, in this first chapter about the imagination, I actually go into this detail. I'm not going to do it now, but go into detail about how we've understood the imagination in our Western culture. We now know that the world we're living, this, this, we all think, you know, we're sitting here, individual people in a room. But that reality of us sitting here in this room is literally an act of the imagination. It's a collective act of imagination. We actually know this now. Cognitive science tells us this. And philosophy and thinking tells us this over the generations. In other words, there is raw data. It's not that the world doesn't exist. There's raw data. But how that raw data is constructed into a world is an act of the imagination. Dogen, our wonderful 13th century founder of Soto Zen, has a beautiful poetic way of saying this. He says, uh, do you think the ocean is the ocean? To us, it's the ocean. But to dragons, it's a palace. It's not an ocean. To a bird, it's a jewel shining below. It's true. If an ant now is walking across the floor in this room, the ant is not in the same room we're in. The ant doesn't live in this room that you and I live in. Because the ant doesn't have the same human imagination that we have. The ant has its own kind of imagination. It has its own world, just as valid as ours, but different. So our imaginations are really powerful. We have imagined this world and all of its problems. And we've painted ourselves into a corner. We have to imagine differently. We have to cultivate the imagination through our creative activity. The imagination is so powerful. It is essential to our being human. Think about it. The Bible, all religious texts, all folk tales, all myths, all rhymes, all poems, all plays, novels, anecdotes, music, ritual, dreams. All of these imaginative projections rise up from the unconscious to interpret and give us the world. To help us to know who and what we really are. If we only lived in a physical, material world, period, we could not stand it. We would not last more than a generation. There has to be love, which is the most profound act of imagination of all. Think about it. If it was only, you know, yes, you and I will be together because I need certain, I, need, I have needs that need to be met. I like to have somebody to talk to. Somebody who can cook, help me cook and clean up. And that's it. If that was only it, it wouldn't be enough. That's not love, right? Love is, I care about you 
profoundly, even more than I care about myself. And through my imagination, loving you, I make you into be the most important person in the world. That's love. Without love, we couldn't be here. Without love and without creativity and imagination, there's no happiness, there's no beauty. Without happiness and, no, and beauty and love, we're not human anymore. And we have reduced this force in our own lives to our peril. So my argument is that religious practice, although it doesn't look like it, and the history of religion might not make it look like this either, that's what religion is supposed to be. It's supposed to be the prime site of our imagination. In ancient times, there is no record of any human culture, ever, without spirituality. Wherever there's human beings, there's always spirituality. Because human beings always have imagination, and they always need to express their imaginative heart, and that's called religion and spirituality. Even though, as I say, over the last many thousands of years, it's all gone in different directions. But that's the source of it. That's the root of it. And that's what we have to return to now in our spiritual lives. Spiritual life has to be the source of our creativity and of our opening ourselves up, not only to the creative, to the imaginative, but also to love. And that's where the Bodhisattva path comes in. Because the Bodhisattva path is a path of radical love. So maybe you know about this in Buddhism. <clears throat> so uh, in early Buddhism, so Buddhism uh, you know, has a lot of, it's a big, uh, you know, like uh, <coughs> Christianity only has the Bible, the New Testament, the Old Testament. You could read it, right? The whole thing. Maybe like, it wouldn't take you that long. You could read it again and again and again. But in Buddhism, there's a vast, they haven't even like begun to even translate the scriptures. There's so many of them. I would say, I don't know what percentage, but I'm going to make a wild guess and say that in Western languages, we have 10% maybe 10% translated into English. And then there's the other 90%. And then there's another 100% that was lost in the sands of the Silk Road. <clears throat> so what I'm saying is it's a big literature. And it's over time developed. Because it was written over many, many hundreds of years, not just in one few years. End of story. No, it was written over many, many hundreds of years. So in the beginning, the early texts, there was the Buddha. Everybody knows about the Buddha. He, I think everybody knows the Buddha's story and his awakening. And... Before the Buddha became the Buddha, he had many previous lifetimes of preparing for this lifetime in which he would become a Buddha. And they call the Buddha in his previous lifetimes the Bodhisattva. The Bodhisattva is a Buddha in training. And there's a lot of folk tales in 
uh, India and uh, Nepal and other places, Thailand and so on, about what did the Buddha do? You want to know, right? How do you prepare yourself to be a Buddha? What did the Buddha do? Pretty much what the Buddha did in all those lifetimes, he didn't really meditate or anything like that. What he did was two things. Number one, devotion. He had tremendous devotion for the teachings and for the previous Buddhas. But more important than this was number two. He had enormous compassion for all beings and did enormous compassionate acts on behalf of others. <clears throat> so a bodhisattva is a being preparing to be a Buddha who does enormous acts of sincere devotion and compassion. And there's one bodhisattva who became later born as the Buddha. But it, as the literature of Buddhism developed over time, the idea changed a little bit. And so instead of one Buddha, there were infinite Buddhas. And instead of one Bodhisattva, there were infinite Bodhisattvas. And then it even changed more, because after a while, it became, well, <coughs> we don't really want to be Buddhas. We want to be Bodhisattvas. We don't want to finish the job. We want to love everyone until everyone lives in a just and happy awakened world. Then we can become a Buddha after that. And since there's infinite beings, we have a long way to go. But we don't mind because the path of the Bodhisattva is what we most want to do, what gives us the most joy and the most happiness. To work for the benefit of others is the most joyful thing. That's what Varshini Prakash said from Sunrise. She said, if I didn't do something every day to help people, I would not be a happy person. I'm so happy that I have something to do to help other people. I'm not discouraged. I'm not worried about what's going to happen. I only want to keep helping others. She's really a bodhisattva. And I think we all have to be bodhisattvas, if only for our own happiness, even if we don't care. We have to care because we're happy when we care. That's what makes you happy, right? Caring, loving. It's funny, it's a paradox, because you get more miserable even the more happy you get. Because, again, Shigami and I were talking about this. There was a fly in the toilet, you know? And I was so, oh, gee, that's too bad, you know, the fly in the toilet. The fly's drowning in the toilet. That's awful, you know? Can I get the fly out of the toilet, maybe with a piece of paper or something, get the fly out? I care about the fly. What's wrong with me? I must be, it's ridiculous, you know? But this is what happens to you. You care. The more you care, 
the more sorrow, right? The more sorrow, the more love. The more love, the more joy. It's kind of crazy, but that's the way it goes, right? I always say to people, if you want to understand suffering, I'll, I'll tell you what to do. Get married and have children. Then you'll get a whole course in suffering. It's true, right? You think, you know, everybody knows how much trouble there is in families, right? Isn't it amazing that everybody wants to get married in a family? Why would they want to do that? Because they came from a family, right? And they know there's a lot of problems there, you know, and all this. Because we don't mind suffering for love, right? It's worth it. So this is being a bodhisattva. Bodhisattvas are spiritual practitioners who are devoted to their practice, who have tremendous energy to continue to practice, who study teachings, encourage others and are encouraged by others, and only want to see a beautiful world for everyone. And that's what they're working toward. They don't, they don't think, oh, I've been doing this for two hours and, and the world hasn't improved yet. What's wrong? They don't think like that. They think, this life, next life, the one after that, keep going. Is it getting any better? Of course it is. Of course it is. But it's going to take an infinite amount of time. So that's a while. But we're getting there. Because they have confidence, steadfastness, and decisiveness. And they are not bothered by setbacks <clears throat> at all. They know, of course, who ever heard of human life, there's no setbacks. Of course there's setbacks, that's part of the process. Of course there's backlashes. A wave goes out, a wave comes in. Of course that's the way the waves work, you know. So this is a book about cultivating the imaginative practice of being a bodhisattva. And the path of the bodhisattva is defined by six practices. And this is a classical um, formulation in Mahayana Buddhism. Many, many, many Mahayana scriptures talk about these six practices. And, and in the book, after I set up the initial framework about the imagination, I then say, okay, let's all be bodhisattvas. And let's do the six practices. And now I have six more chapters on each of the six practices. And I try to give traditional teachings about each of the practices, but then also think about the contemporary world and how we would practice these things. And there's always difficulties. It's never simple. We don't, you know, it's not like just do this, period. No, it's always complex. We have to be smart people and sensitive and understand and make mistakes and correct ourselves and get the main point and keep going, you know, so I, I talk about all that. And then at the end I have a couple of pages of, of, of practices for you to actually do. Meditation practices and other daily life practices that you can do in your conversations with people and you're moving through the world. So you can, this could be like a whole lifetime project, this book, actually, if you, if you really were wanted to do it easily. Because these six practices are, I mean, 
not that I exhaust the six practices only in this book. The point, the, the whole point of the book is, I always say the last practice. I list all these practices that I make up, and the last one is, make up your own. That's always the last one. So the point is that, not just this book, but these six practices are infinite. You can go, your ability to practice them more and more and more and to develop them and refine them is beyond any limit. So the six practices are, first, generosity. It's the first practice. And it's a very profound practice because it, it doesn't just mean like write a check. That's, of course, a good thing to do, and we all do that. I hope we all do that. Like write a check to the San Antonio Zen Center because it's a good thing to do, and we need it. Other people in need, we write checks, but that's generosity is not limited to that. It starts with the feeling and the reflection. Wow, life itself is generous. Who here can say, I earned this life. I got it for myself. No. That's why the people who say, look at me, I pulled myself up by my bootstraps and look how rich I am. What are they talking about? They were given life. And it wasn't even given to them by their mother although their mother did a lot of work to make it happen, it flowed through their mother to them. Because life does that. Life goes on. If you've ever tried to free your weed garden of weeds, you know that no matter what you do, life will keep bursting out right when you don't expect it and where you don't even want it necessarily. Life makes more life. Life is inherently generous. And you are life. We are all life. So this is the first thing, is to recognize who you are and what you are and, and the nature of life's generosity. And it goes on from there. And, and the idea is that every time you do, just like a bodhisattva in the early days of the text, doing good for others and acts of kindness, just for you to look at somebody, another human being, without being scared, because we're scared of each other, actually. Without being scared to look at another human being with love, with sympathy, somebody you don't even know. You pass them on the street, you know? To look at the person you pass on the street with a sense of, this is a sacred human being. What a wonderful person. I'm smiling at this person. This is an act of generosity. And it makes the world different. Believe me, if everybody on the street Tomorrow, just for one day, only on the street, for one day, looked at one another and smiled. It would be a different world on the next day. That's how powerful it is. And everything that you do for yourself, taking care of yourself as well as others, so generosity is infinite. And that's the foundational practice of the Bodhisattva. Generosity. The second practice is ethical conduct. It's very important that bodhisattvas are expansive and generous, but also understand that there are times in which restraint is called for. Because sometimes you hurt people without intending to. 
You don't know what you're doing. We have this going on now. I think a lot of people are hurting other people, and they don't intend to do it. They don't even know they're doing it. And yet they are doing it. Because their ethical conduct has not gone deep enough to understand their social structures and how the social structures in which they participate cause harm. We don't know that. So they need to practice ethical conduct to understand how we harm one another and to not do that anymore. No harming. No harming and instead benefiting. That's the essence of ethical conduct. The third practice is very important. Patient forbearance. This is the practice of dealing with very, very tough things. Because it's 100% guaranteed that very, very tough things occur to you and to people around you. No getting around this. If your strategy is, I hate terrible things, I'm going to avoid them at all costs. When I see them coming, I'm crossing the street. Plus, I have myself insured against everything. And I'm freaking out. If it looks like something bad might be happening, because the last thing in the world I want is anything bad to happen. I can't stand it. If that's the way we live, and most of us live that way, it's a terrible way to live. Terrible. We're scared all the time. We have a natural instinct to turn away from difficulty and danger. It's natural in us. Patient forbearance is the practice of turning around and facing the difficulty. It doesn't mean asking for difficulty or making difficulty. It means when difficulty is unavoidable, I, of course we try to avoid difficulty. Of course we do. When difficulty is unavoidable, instead of turning away, we turn toward. And we say, good, this difficulty will strengthen my practice. This difficulty will make me a wiser, deeper human being. And there's a whole cultivation, a whole science and practice cultivating a forbearing heart. So that's the third practice. It's very important because a lot of people will do spiritual practice. They think of spiritual practice as something nice and pleasant. And so they do it and it's nice. The meditation, oh, it's so peaceful. I love going to the center. so peaceful there. Everybody's so nice. They smile at you. It's wonderful. I love it there. Oops, something bad just happened to me. I can't go there anymore. Because something bad happened to me. I'm not going to go there. It's nice there. I'm not in the mood. I'm not in the mood anymore. It's a bad thing happened. Forget my spiritual practice now. I'm in the soup. Forget about it. But it's the opposite. That's when you need to come to the Zendo. That's when you need to do your practice. Because you need to learn how to turn yourself around in your deepest, inmost heart. Why are you suffering when this bad thing happened? Because you can't stand it. Why are you not coming to the Zen that you can't face other people in your difficulty? The thing, the secret thing about Zendos in all religious places, if they're truly, and not all religious places are sound and 
true. But any true religious place understands suffering. That's the place to go when you're suffering. Because that's the place where even if you don't say a word, people will understand. And they will help you wordlessly if you're not ready for words. I remember when I was young, I had a lot, a lot, a lot of suffering. And I remember going to sit with my teacher. He didn't say a word to help me, nothing. But I just sat there and st I stayed, I lived there in the house with him for a while. And just being there, I could suffer my own suffering. And I didn't have to run away from it. Because the space of the silence allowed me to do that. And that's what we need. We have to go through things. Not run away. So that's the third. The fourth is called, and these are translated, of course they have Sanskrit words, they're translated in different ways, but <coughs> enthusiastic effort. So bodhisattvas are constantly making effort all the time. And if, if you think of effort as like work, oh God, this is just, ah, my, my, my Zen practice is such hard work. Oh my God, I need a break. No, no. Bodhisattva effort is inherently joyful. Nothing gives you more pleasure and brings your heart up more than your practice. And of course, that's not true for most of us. We have to cultivate this. We cultivate it. We develop it. Right? We develop it. And eventually, you can develop this. You can develop... And, you know, I talk about, what about when you're old? What about you're too old to get out of bed? There's a way to practice joyful effort when you're old in bed. What about when you're really tired? There's a way to practice it, appropriately in that condition. We don't think, it's not just you have to be young and in a good mood, you know? Otherwise, the whole world would go to pot, you know? No, you have to be able to practice joyful effort in all conditions, differently. So we talk about that. And then the last two practices are meditation. And again, there's a lot of, meditation doesn't just mean like we do in Zen meditation. That is meditation, and it's a very important form of meditation. But also, studying scriptures is meditation, prayer is meditation, song is meditation, many, many forms. Some people say, I walk in the woods. That's def definitely meditation, if that's the intention, and that's why you're doing it. It's meditation, too. Many, many forms. And we have to practice many forms of meditation. Because meditation settles the heart quiets the mind. It's like tilling the soil. If you want to plant something, you've got to turn the soil and turn the soil so that light and air get in it. And that's why you have to practice meditation. And the, and the sixth practice is called transcendent wisdom. And this is the wisdom that actually changes your, your eyes, changes your heart. Because when you develop transcendent wisdom, and there's no end to it, again, no end to this. We can get a little glimpse and we get more. It's a long story. It's kind of complicated. I try, it's, it's, a hard, it's hard to talk about, so I try it in my book. You'll tell me. You'll send me an email and let me know. How, did I do a good job talking about this transcendent wisdom? Because it's the wisdom of emptiness, which I spoke about in the beginning. When you appreciate this transcendent wisdom, <coughs> then the world is 
otherwise for you. You actually don't live in the same world. You live in the same world, but you feel that world differently. You see it differently. It's a whole other world to you. <clears throat> because transcendent wisdom means there's no you. There's only us. Us doesn't mean just other people like you. It doesn't even mean other human beings. It means everything, every living being, every non-living being, a stone, a cloud. So you see that tremendous connection. And you see how everything is moving together toward awakening. Even though everything's in a total mess, that's okay. Things are in a mess sometimes, but that's how what it takes to move us forward. So you're not discouraged. You don't think things have gone wrong. No. Being a bodhisattva in our times requires action. Doesn't mean you accept the world to be what it is, because you know that part of what the make what makes the world as it is is human activity. You're a human being. So your activity is part of what makes the world be what it is and what it will be. So you take responsibility appropriately. So if you're an old person and your body doesn't move that well, you don't have that much energy, you're not going to like go and protest in the streets, maybe. Maybe you do, but maybe you don't. Or maybe you don't, but you, you exercise your right as a citizen and you vote and you speak. But you practice kindness. You practice caring. And in that way, you take care of the world. In other words, whatever your way is, appropriate to your situation, you take full responsibility for this world. Because that, you're human. That's what human beings must do. Otherwise, they hurt themselves. And you see that. And it's not hard for you to do that. It's not a chore. Because that's the way you see the world. That's the way, the only way you would want to live. You wouldn't want to, it would be impossible for you to live any other way. Because you see the world with eyes of love. And it's such a wonderful thing. You realize how lucky I am to be alive right now in this world. I always say, you know, when we have a retreat, at the end of the retreat, I always say, how could it be that this group of people, we all sat together in silence for seven days together. How could it be that exactly the right people that we needed to be here came? How could that be? It's amazing. How could it be that you are alive and you are surrounded by exactly the people you need. Even though this one gives you a pain in the butt, and you hate that one over there, and this one is so troublesome, they're exactly the people you need to do the spiritual work you need to do for this lifetime. How did that happen? It's unbelievable. You see, with wisdom eyes, this is true. It's really true. How lucky we all are to be alive together in these times with all the passion and trouble of them. How lucky we are. It's brilliant. You know, it's brilliant. 
with transcendent wisdom. This is really what you see. I mean, you actually see it. You're not making it up. You see it. Now, do you still get frustrated and have problems and so? Of course, of course, because you're still a normal. You're still a normal person. I mean, say, I'm saying all this, but nobody who's a bodhisattva is not also a normal person like anybody else. But you have reframed your normal personhood and hold it differently in your heart. And you're willing to be that person, completely willing to be yourself. It, the whole thing might come down to that. Willing, fully willing to be yourself and, and take responsibility for that. That may be the only thing I've said so far. <laughs> Okay, so that's about my... I forgot to read anything, but that's okay. Uh, now, how about a few little poems? Are you ready for that? Do you want to stand up and stretch for a second? Do we need to stand up and stretch? Let's do, let's do that. Let's do that. Okay. Could I get a little more? 